0: 1021 Again this is first John not the gospel of John but you will hear as we as we begin that they are very similar. let me read this for us. that which was from the beginning which we have heard, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, And his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, What does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to this text this morning, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that we would have clarity as your word is read and taught, and when you give us insight, Lord, into what the Holy Spirit is doing. Father, we pray for our hearts to be soft. That you would give us humility as we see the gospel put on display in this passage. And would you give us a love for you and a love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a youth pastor, there is one question that I seem to get a lot. Kids often come to me and they say, Josh, how can I know that I'm really saved? how can I know, how can I have assurance that I'm truly a Christian? I think this is a question that maybe all of us wrestle with at time to time, but maybe there's a special season in middle school or high school that makes this question even more relevant for them. And so they find themselves asking it a lot. And perhaps this is because high school and middle school are a time where maybe you've gotten into some sin. Your first kind of struggling with some sin in your life and you're asking, does God still love me through this sin? Am I still a Christian even though I'm sinning in this way? Or perhaps you've grown up in the church and you know that your faith is really more the faith of your parents. And so you're, you're trying to figure it out. Is this my faith? So I think this is a question that, that comes up a lot during that time. And I think it's an important question. It's not just one that people in middle school or high school should ask, but it's one that should, all of us should ask about ourselves. How can we have assurance? Are we Are we following the path that leads to eternal life? What criteria? What What is the basis to have this assurance? And I, and I introduce it that way because our passage from First John really is addressing this issue, this issue of assurance. In the book of First John, John is answering this question for the people he's writing to. So instead of sending your youth child to me, just send them to John. And so this morning together, we will go to the book of First John and we'll look through this and to see how John presents this. And as we, as we begin this morning, I want to just provide us with some background for our text uh, the book of 1 John is written by the Apostle John. So that is John, who was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Um, John wrote 1 John, but he also wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. So in total, we have five books that John wrote. And this makes sense since John was so close to Jesus. It makes sense that he would write about. He would write about Jesus' life in the Gospel of John, and then he, would, he was one of the church leaders, the early church leaders we see. And as we, as we read our text, we'll see some similarities, like I've already said, that between the works of John. So we're reading the first John, but we've already seen that the way in which John talks about Jesus as the Word is something similar to the Gospel of John. In our passage and in the Gospel of John, he uses the Word to describe Jesus, and so that can be helpful. It's, you see different themes, light and darkness that John uses, and these connections can be helpful as we, as we look through both of these. So our letter, then, written by John, is written to a group of churches that have recently gone through some sort of traumatic experience, some sort of church splits, So as far as we can tell from the clues within the letter itself, this church recently was dealing with some sort of false teachers that had infiltrated the church and then were spreading false doctrines about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Um, So we don't have all all of the details of what these teachers did, but we have the sense that these teachers got into the early church probably a network of house churches here. And then after spreading these false teachings about Jesus, they had gone out. Later in the book of 1 John, we see that those who went out from you. So these people left, and they've left this church fractured, broken, and unsure about the truth. And so you can picture this church that is just reeling in the wake of this split. These people have come in. They've, they've spread false Doctrines, I'm not sure if there was fights, if it was contentious, but now they've gone out and this church is now kind of shaken up. They're confused about what's true. It's traumatic when anyone stirs up trouble within a church and then leaves. Um, and So you can imagine that they're, they're hurting. So John, as a pastor, is writing this letter to them to help them know what is true. He's writing to assure them of the truth of Jesus and how ha- how to know that they can have assurance of their faith. This letter is very pastoral as as John is writing to them. As best we can tell, um, the beliefs that would have been spread, some of these false beliefs that would have been in in the church at this time are something similar to early Gnosticism, docetism, or sarentinthianism. Are you guys impressed? Uh, so those are those are some big words. Those are some of the cults that were around during this time. We're not really sure if all of these cults were present, and these are the ones that John is refuting here. But that's, that's what it looks like as we read the letter. You'll see how John is teaching, and the way he's teaching it seems to show that he's contradicting some very specific cult teachings. Um, so he's refuting those. So... While each one of these cults had its own brand of heresy, they were all connected and they were all, um, what they had in common was that they all had a wrong view of Jesus. So in some way or another, each one of these cults said something wrong about Jesus. Um, I think it's it's kind of interesting that it seems like most cults, kind of the linchpin is that question of Jesus, isn't it? who is Jesus is is the question. Um, I've never come across a cult um, that has a right understanding of Jesus, but then errs in some other way. Um, so if you find a cult that has that, let me know. Um, so again, some of these cults were spreading false teaching about who Jesus was. And this is why John writes to them to directly contradict what they're, they're teaching, these false teachings. So in our opening statements, that's what we're gonna kind of focus in on now, and uh, it'll we'll, we'll see some of those contradictions. Um, but before we get there, the kind of the main purpose statement of this letter is helpful to know. And unlike how we would usually write, possibly uh, an essay or something, we would usually put the thesis statement for our our book or our work at the front of. Um, in the first chapter, John's thesis statement actually comes at the very end of the, his work. So in John chapter 5, verse 13, we see John's thesis statement for this whole work. Uh, and it's interesting because his thesis statement in 1 John comes at the end, but also in, in the gospel of John, the thesis statement really comes at the end as well. John twenty thirty one. So similar writings, you can see the continuity between both works. So let me read for us. John's purpose statement, we, we won't, don't worry, we won't study the whole chapter, but just as we begin to see John's message, his, the reason for writing this, and again, it comes from chapter 5, verse 13. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So that, that's the thesis of the whole letter that believers would know that they have eternal life. John wants the believers that he's writing to to have confidence. Again, they're shaken up. They're uncertain about what is truth. And so he wants them to know how what is truth and how they can have assurance in that. So how does John do this? How does John help us have this assurance? Well, we see that he does this through providing three foundational criteria by which a believer can evaluate themselves. These are three things that a person needs to have rights in order to have assurance of their salvation. So you can see on the screen what these things are. These are things that John puts up for us. The first one is right doctrine. This involves what a person believes about Jesus. The second one is right living, and this involves how we live in response to our understanding of Jesus, and then the final one is real love. This is this is talking about a love for God, but then also a love that spills out onto your brothers and sisters. So throughout John's letter, we will see these three themes highlighted again and again and again. Um, and so we're only focusing on first the first section of John's letter, but so we will focus on right doctrine and right living, but if you were to continue reading the the book of 1 John on your own, you would see how the love for the brothers is involved in that. So if you're taking notes, that's the first kind of heading for us is right doctrine. And so with right doctrine, we'll we'll now jump into that introduction part and and go through it slowly. Let me read it again for us, verses 1 through 4. and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with the son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete okay so we have to ask the question here what is what is John accomplishing in this introduction what is he what is he trying to do and although it's written kind of almost in a poem form right this is not how you would think about writing a letter it's it's more Poetic than that, we see that John is really doing two things. Two things that we'll will highlight here is he's establishing his credibility and he's correcting false teaching about Jesus. So first he's establishing his credibility. So remember that John is writing to a group of people that are struggling. They've had these false teachers come in and, and say some crazy things and they're they're confused. Should they follow John? Or should they follow these teachers that have gone out from, um, from among them? Um, how can they know who to trust? And so in writing this, John is establishing his own credentials. And, and check that out. If you look, you'll see that John really emphasizes his personal eyewitness account. Did you notice that? He says, which we have heard. So we're talking about Jesus here. Again, the word. He says, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. The we that John is using here is referring to himself and the other apostles, the ones that were with, John, with Jesus. And so John, as he's establishing his credibility, he's reminding the church that he's credible to teach about Jesus because he was with Jesus for three years. He walked with Jesus. He heard him. He was able to see Jesus physically and touch him. These are some, This is something that the false teachers would not have been able to claim. So this helps John's credibility. And not only that, but John was appointed as an apostle to lead the early church. And so in this introduction, John is showing that he is credible, that his, his testimony is true, what he proclaims to them. And as you think about this, this should also be encouraging to us, right? There's people that, that will try to discredit the Bible by saying that it was a legend passed down over hundreds and hundreds of years until it was finally written down. And yet what we see here is that John, an eyewitness, is writing five books of the New Testament, speaking directly about his experience with Jesus, teaching doctrine about what it means to live with Jesus. And we'll see his claims about Jesus are not that he was just a good teacher, but that he was God. So that that should be encouraging, that God's word is reliable. It is true. This is not a legend that has been passed down and grown slowly over time. This is from the eyewitness accounts. So that's the first thing that John is doing. He's establishing his credibility. But then the second thing he's doing is correcting false teaching. John's correcting some of this heresy that had slipped in, these ideas about Jesus. Jesus. So if you look at the text, you'll see this again as John is writing about Jesus or the word of life. Listen to what he writes. He says, that which was from the beginning and which was with the father and made manifest to us. So with these two phrases, John is contradicting the false teachers of the day that would have taught that Jesus was not truly God. Some of these false teachings would have been that Jesus was possibly the first created being, um, that he was created by God, and, and yet he was not God, and, and John is refuting that. John is showing, no, he was with God in the beginning. That's before the creation of the world. John is showing that Jesus is eternal. He calls him the eternal life. All those who are in Jesus have eternal life because Jesus is the eternal life. We see this same idea, right? First John uh, says the same thing that the gospel of John had, has for us. So in, when Christian read this earlier, we saw that John, as his introduction, shows that Jesus is not a created being, but that he was with God and he is God. Listen to it again. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So you see, in just this introduction, in this poetic way, John is confronting these ideas and showing that Jesus is God. He is equal with God the Father in the Trinity. And this is is the same idea that we saw last week, right? With Philippians chapter two. This is something that, Paul affirmed, and now we see also John is affirming it. So another false teaching that we see John correct um, is the idea that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. So this one is not very popular today, but during this time, there would have been this idea that all flesh was somehow corrupted and wicked, and that the spirit was better. So if Jesus were to come in the flesh, then he wouldn't be as good. So when Jesus came, he came as a spirit. You couldn't actually touch him. Um, he maybe was more a, a, an illusion of some sort and then went about teaching. Um, but John is rejecting this. He is, he's saying that Jesus became flesh, and he shows that, right? He says, we've seen him, and we've, we've even been able to touch him. We know that he had a body. So John is rejecting this idea that Jesus was just a spirit, and he's showing that he actually became flesh and blood. He took on a human form. He became a man, and this is important, right? Like you can think, why, why argue about these things if the if the teaching is the same? If if we're affirming the same thing about what Jesus says, why are the details specific? Why can't we just kind of get along? But if But this is something that Christianity has always affirmed. It's been clear about that Jesus fully became man. He was fully God and fully man because only as a man could he really be a substitute for us. He had to become like us so that he could pay for our sin. This is what Hebrews says clearly in 2.14. And this is the NLT. I love the way it puts it. Listen to it. It says, Because God's children... Are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Jesus became fully man. He took on to himself a, a fully human nature, so that he might taste death for us and destroy it. So again, you can see that if, if someone were to teach that Jesus didn't fully become man, How dangerous that would be for the church. So after now establishing his credibility and refuting some of this teaching, we see that John says this. He closes this section by saying, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So that's how John closes that last section and what What John is doing here is he's saying, right doctrine matters. What we believe about Jesus affects our fellowship with God, and it affects our assurance of salvation, right? John has just corrected these false views of who Jesus was, and he's saying, I want you to have fellowship with me. John knows that his fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, and he knows that For those who have incorrect views of Jesus, those who have a false view of Jesus, there is no fellowship. He says, I want you to have fellowship with me. And this means that a right view of Jesus matters. We can't pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we want. Right doctrine matters. You see, if the early church were to reject John's teaching on this, they would have been rejecting Jesus in rejecting what John is saying, they would have been rejecting Jesus and they would have been rejecting fellowship with God. So John is saying it's important to understand who Jesus was as part of having assurance in our faith. So as we kind of wrap up this this section, the question that we need to ask for us today is, how should we respond? How should we think about this? How can we apply this to our life? I think one way that's really practical is that we should be reminded of how important it is to know the Jesus of the Bible to know Jesus as he's revealed himself in God's word right it's it's easy to assume that we we know Jesus that we've heard stories and then we we add in bits and pieces or add in ideas that we like and we we want them to be who Jesus is rather than doing the work of getting to know who Jesus is. Something that is incredibly sad is there's so many young people um, in different Christian movements, evangelical movements, that I'm afraid are not getting to know the true Jesus because they're getting wrapped up in in a movement. They're getting excited about Jesus And what it means to follow Jesus, but it's it's about emotion. It's about the experience. It's about being with other people their age, singing and getting this special feeling that they're part of something. And yet, deep down, there's not this connection with Jesus. They haven't taken the time to get to know Jesus. They know a few things about them and they get excited, but this is not something that will last them when the hard times come. We need to know who God has revealed himself to be. We need to have humility. And rather than assume, we need to come to him and ask him to show us who he is. True faith, true faith in Jesus is is faith in the, the Jesus that humbled himself, like we looked at last week, who came as a servant, who humbled himself even to the point of death, and now calls those who would follow him to do the same. It can be exciting to follow Jesus, and yet the excitement is not what's going to last. We have to know Jesus. It's far too easy to get excited about something and to have sincere faith in that thing without that thing being of substance, right? And Dustin explained this a few weeks ago. He said that it doesn't matter how sincere your faith is, If your faith is not in something that can save you. We must believe in the the true Jesus of the Bible. We must guard against heresies that try to keep us from believing false things about him. Jesus himself explains this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a serious thing, knowing who Jesus is. And again, this is is to have true assurance. Doctrine matters. If we want to have true assurance, we need to know that we are following the Jesus that saves. And so an obvious application from this is to know know God's word. It's, It's good to hear other people teach on it, but there is no substitute for getting in and reading the Bible yourself. Especially today when we have so much access to this. We shouldn't be content to just hear it, but we need to get in and read it and study it. This is, uh, this is especially a good time to do that. This is the new year, right? As we're setting resolutions and thinking about that, I would encourage you to get a Bible reading plan, get some sort of plan that will help you get into the Bible. I printed out a bunch and put them on the welcome table if you want to grab one after this, but I want to encourage you that we should, we should be like the Bereans that the Bible holds up as examples, right? In the book of Acts, the Bereans were a group of people that when they heard Paul teaching to them, they didn't just accept it, but they opened the scripture themselves. They looked through the scripture to see if what Paul was telling them was true about God's word. And so as we do that, as we study God's word, we will have a bigger, a fuller picture of who God is and what he has for us. So now that we've seen the first section, we can kind of move on into this next section. This this is the section that begins in verse five uh, and goes all the way to verse six of chapter two. If you are taking notes, This section is titled, Right Living. Right Living. So let me read it for us again. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, so this is this is a big section, right? There's a lot going on in this, but I wanted to keep it together because it is a full argument, uh, and it it's one kind of thought that John has here, and so I wanted to try to keep it together, and I think it will become clear as we break it up and walk through it. And so, the first parts that we're going to look at in this section is the first sentence and the last sentence. The first sentence and the last sentence. And this might sound strange, but what this does is it kind of provides us with neat little bookends. So John begins this section with a truth statement, and then he ends the, the section with a truth statement. And these provide us with a summary of all that's going on in the middle. So the first one, if you look, it says, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And then the last statement says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. So Can you see what John is doing? He's saying that God is light, meaning he is perfect, he is holy, he is righteous, he is pure. And anyone who claims to know him ought to, to live that way they ought to live the way that Jesus lived since god is holy those who follow him should live holy lives so in this first so in this section it's all about right living it's about how now do we follow jesus do we live for god right if the if the first section was about right correct orthodoxy this next section is about correct orthopraxy which means how to live as a Christian, right living before God. Uh, so with our opening and our closing statement, we we see that. And so now as we move into the, the middle section, we're going to see that John here addresses some of these false ideas. Again, he's going after these false ideas that would have been spreading through the church, and then he's showing them in response, how should Christians live? And if you look, I, I think we tried to get this on the, on the screen, But this section is made up of four statements that start with, if we say. If we say, if we say, if we say, and then the last one is those who say, or something like that. But if if you look at it in that way, what most people believe that John is doing here is he's actually directly addressing what these false teachers would have been saying. Right, so he says, if we say, like these false teachers would have would have been saying, and so what we're gonna what we're gonna do, is we will focus on these four different parts together, and we'll focus first just on the negative side, the 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 things that they're claiming. If we say this, if we say this, if we say this, and we're gonna look at the negative side that they were claiming that these false teachers were, saying in the church, and then. After that, we're going to move on to the next section, and we're going to look at John's response. So first, we'll see all of the negative together, and then we'll move over into the positive. So let's look first look at that first statement. Um, this is starting in verse 6. It says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So from this statement we can see that these teachers that had gotten into the church were claiming to have this relationship with God, but were not following him. They were claiming to have fellowship with God, and yet were walking in darkness. And so in response, John tells him that they're liars. He says they're not practicing the truth. John has just shown us that God is light, and anyone who is going to follow him should walk in that light. So someone who claims to have the truth, claims to have this close relationship with God, and yet walks in darkness, is a hypocrite. Right? This is a religious leader who's claiming a connection with God and yet making a practice of sin. So You can see how John is comforting these people by saying, listen, this is not the way of, of Jesus claiming that you have this relationship with God and yet practicing darkness these people that have gone out from you are not true Christians they can't be if they if they're saying one thing and doing another let's look at the second statement in verse 8 it says if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us so from this we can we can see that these false teachers would have claimed that they were out without sin. And so perhaps this, this is someone who believes because of their high spiritual state, because of this, this status they have with God that they have gotten to a place where they're no longer sinning, that they've arrived, that they're so sanctified that they have completely stopped sinning. Everyone else around them is still a sinner, but, but they are not, they are no longer a sinner. And you can think about this. This is, not, this is not someone who's claiming that they've been forgiven of Jesus. This is someone who's arrogantly boasting that they no longer have sinned. And think about how dangerous this is for the church, right? For a spiritual leader to get up and say, I've arrived. I no longer sin. Well, this is, this is how abuse happens in the church, While while a spiritual leader who all the people think is blessed by God is allowed to do these things that are not by God, people follow them and say, well, they have an anointing. They have God's blessing on them. And unfortunately, we've seen this in some megachurches where people think the pastors are untouchable, where they think that there's a special anointing, or maybe they've not totally stopped sinning, but close enough. And this is not true. This is heretical And it's a good reminder for us not to elevate anyone, right? Even the most self-disciplined among us, even the holiest among us is a sinner saved by grace who's still sinning, We need God's grace every single day to keep us from falling into temptation. So rather than elevating someone in your life, rather than putting them on a pedestal, pray for them. Pray that God, by his grace, would keep each other from falling into sin. So let's look at the third statement in verse 10. It says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So in this next section, we see now that the religious leaders are going even further. They're not just claiming that they've stopped sinning now, but they're claiming that they've never sinned. This is this is a denial of their need for the gospel. While everyone else needs to be forgiven, while everyone else needs grace, I have never sinned. Therefore, you can follow me and trust me. This is a denial of what the Bible teaches. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And to, so, so to say that you've never sinned, that that you're outside of that, is to make God a liar. John is absolutely clear. These men are not following God. These men these men who came in and were probably impressive and said a lot of things, they're not following God. There's no way they can when they deny God's word. They don't have love for God in their heart. They're not submitted to God's word. And so let's look at the fourth statement now. This one starts in verse four of chapter two. It says, whoever says, I know him. But does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So finally, we see that these false teachers are claiming to know God and yet are not obeying his commands. And this this one is similar to the first one, right? We see a connection. They're not walking in the lights. Now we see what that means. They're not obeying God's commands. And these are just like the Pharisees that Jesus opposed. These are those who they talk the talk. They know how to tell others to follow Jesus. They know how to put heavy burdens on others, and yet they themselves are not submitting to God. These people do not know God. They might know of God, but if they're not willing to submit to him as master, then they should have no assurance. And John shows that that this person is a liar, and they don't know the truth, right? And even Jesus says Something about this type of person. In Luke 6.46, he calls out people like this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? These are people that are saying, Lord, Lord, we, we trust in you. And yet, they don't obey him. Paul is showing, or John is showing that there's a connection. If we call Jesus our Lord, then obedience should follow him. So now that we've we've seen all these claims that these false teachers would have been making, we need to ask ourselves, where are we similar to these false teachers? And right, as you as you think about that, you're thinking, well, thankfully I'm not claiming those things. But what area in our life are we not submitting to Jesus? These men were claiming to know God, and yet we're not living in that way. What area in our own life are we guilty of that? An area that we want to keep hidden from God. He can be Lord over the other parts of our life, the other areas of our life, but for for this section right here, I'm going to be Lord over that. Lord means master submit to Jesus is to submit our whole life. There's nothing that we should hold back from Him. Nothing that we should keep from Him. Nothing that we should hold in the dark rather than bringing it to the light. light. Or perhaps you've never claimed that you are sinless, that you are done sinning, but you are downplaying or you're minimizing your sin. This is similar. Are you... Are you dismissing your sin, letting it go? It's not a big deal, rather than seeing it as God sees it. It's so easy for all of us to make excuses, to justify, to show why our sin is not that serious, and we should be okay. Just let let us alone. But this is not how the Bible treats sin. The Bible calls us to treat sin like a deadly disease and to cut it out even if that means losing a body part. Jesus is serious about sin. He died to kill sin. So are we treating it in that same way? Or are we trying to justify it or make excuses? The Bible's call for us is to put it to death, to confess it, to not keep it in the dark so that it has power over us, but to confess it, to to bring it out into the light. So see our sin as what it is. Something that causes death. So now that we've seen the negative side of this, praise God, we get to go to the positive side. We get to see now God's response. We get to see. I keep saying Paul, don't I? I knew I was gonna say that. We gotta see John's response here. We get to see John's response to all of these negative statements, these statements that the false teachers would have been saying. And so as we, as we do this, we will be encouraged. We will see the gospel shine through clearly. Instead of denying our sin, instead of covering up our sin, John is encouraging us to bring it into the light. So let's look at the first, the first one of these responses that John has for us. So instead of claiming to have fellowship with God while walking in darkness, This is John's response. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from sin. John is showing that true fellowship with God comes from walking in the light. Now, this is not talking about being perfect. This is not talking about being without sin. We've, We've already gone over that. But this is talking about bringing our sin into the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. We can have fellowship with one another when we aren't hiding our sin. When we aren't afraid that someone's going to find out. But when we confess it, when we have true fellowship, when we connect with other believers and let them into our life to know what's going on. True fellowship comes from walking in the light. When we admit admit our sin, we have cleansing from it. God's blood covers it, and we are able to have true fellowship. We can move on to now John's second response. It starts with, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here we have such a perfect reminder of the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus has paid for our sin, we can now be completely righteous. We can be holy and blameless and above reproach, as First Colossians says. This is not based on our own merit, but this is based on what Jesus has done for us. So the gospel is the good news. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has accomplished our salvation. That he's alive, and for all those who confess their sins, Jesus is faithful, and he is just to forgive us. And we're going to see what that just means in just a second in this next response. John writes If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Can you see how gospel saturated? All of this language is. John, as he's encouraging the believers, as he's reminding them of truth, he's sticking right to the gospel. He knows that the only hope for sinners is Jesus. He's saying, focus on the gospel here. And this is where we see the part about God being just. God is just because we needed someone to sit in our place. The word, he is our propitiation, means that, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. That it wasn't unjust for God to forgive us. He wasn't just ignoring it. But he was making Jesus the propitiation. Jesus laid down his own life in our place. He is the propitiation for our sins. The punishment that we deserve, God's wrath was laid on him so that Jesus is just. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been laid on Jesus. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. There is nothing now that we need to add to that. It's a beautiful truth, right, that we can remember as we are feeling beaten beaten up by our sin. As we are feeling that shame or that guilt that comes with knowing that we are not perfect, that we fail again and again and again we can know that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. For those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Jesus covers it all. A question that is fun to ask is, what percentage of your sins did Jesus die for on that cross? And as you think about that, you know 100%. 100% that even when we mess up, even when we fail, Jesus has covered our sin. And not just our sins, but sins for the whole world. This means all of those throughout the world, not just Jews, but all Gentiles as well, those who come to Jesus in faith, Jesus will remove their sin and forgive them. This is a call for us to not run from God when we mess up. To not hide in shame, to not be discouraged and to kind of wallow in our sin, but to come to God knowing that he is faithful and just. He's ready to forgive those who have sinned when we confess our sins. Praise God. He is the one that sanctifies us. He's the one that works in our hearts. And John finishes this line by saying that those who have truly come to know God will keep his commands. He says that we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. John is saying that that those who are truly forgiven, those who've truly had their heart changed, are not looking for ways to cover up their sin. But they're coming to God to get forgiveness. So let's look at this last one. This is starting in verse uh, 5. John writes, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. John is closing this section by saying that those who keep God's commandments are those who demonstrate, are the ones that love God. We demonstrate our love for God through our obedience. There's, there's not such a thing as those who love God and then those who obey him. For all those who obey him, it's because they love him. God's love is perfected in them. Love for God shows itself in obedience to God. It's a natural result. It's not perfect. Right? We are going to make mistakes. We're going to, we're going to fail. And that's where God's grace covers us. But for those who truly love God, their, their life will be marked by this continual pursuit of obedience to Him. And this is something that Jesus Himself taught. In John, the Gospel of John 14, 15, He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Showing that obedience comes from love. There are those who can try to jump through religious hoops. They can put on the the customs of religion and try to look good to others. But if it doesn't come from love, it's, it's worthless. True love for God because of what he's done for us will produce true obedience. So as we wrap up this section, what we see is that there's there's two types of people here. There are those who claim to know God, and yet they downplay their sin, or they don't obey God's commands at all. They claim to know God. I know God, I love God, and yet their life is not marked by obedience to God. And to these people, John is saying that you should not have confidence. You should not have assurance. These people that have gone out should have no confidence in their salvation. They have perverted the truth. They're living a lie. But there's a second type of people, and these are the people that truly know God and obey his commands. These are people who their life is marked by humility and an eagerness to follow God, to confess their sins, to walk in the light. They're not perfect, but because they love him, they come to God. And to this group, John provides encouragement. He wants them to have encouragement that even though they're sometimes painfully aware of their own sin and failure, Jesus has washed them completely free. Because of their faith in the true Jesus, they can have confidence that they have eternal life. So as we close, this is an encouragement to to assess our own life, to ask those tough questions about where in our life are we claiming to to walk with God and yet hiding in the dark? If God is light, as we've seen, then all of our life should be brought to, brought into that light. Rather than covering up, rather than hiding, we should confess our sin. We're we're never going to be without sin. There's not one day On this earth that we will be sinless, we will continue to mess up and be frustrated by that. And yet God calls us to continue in that process, that process of sanctification, where within the church we pray for one another, we encourage one another, we build each other up. Praise God that we have the church to help each other.